Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by David Stokes, James Scholes, and Avery Frank from Show Me Institute. Avery, a few weeks ago on the podcast, we talked about some school districts in the state trying to have alternative testing approved. It's called the Innovation Waiver, and close to 20 school districts in the state look like they are going to be able to implement this alternative testing. What do we know right now, and what do you think about this uh, Innovation Waiver? Yeah, Zach. So recently at the state board meeting, 20 districts, they got the green light to use this new standardized testing system. And with that, they're going to be also exempt from the state requirements for the Missouri assessment program. And so of these 20 districts, seven of them are in St. Louis. And this includes Afton, Lindbergh, Melville, Parkway, Pattonville, Ridner, and Confluence Academies. And this new system, it's going to be called the Demonstration Project. So essentially... This, these districts are going to be using this new standardized testing system for a few years. It's a trial program to see, do we want to try to replace this statewide? Is this something we want to use throughout all of Missouri? So they're basically being used as a test, and that is, hopefully it goes well. So the system that they're trying to innovate on here is the MAP test. Everyone has a, a, that has a student is probably familiar with this form of standardized testing. And currently, it's uh, everyone gets the same test, and they sit in a room. And what is different between the current system and for students? What's going to change for students that are part of this program? So, yeah, first thing you, you and your students should know is you're still going to have to take the Missouri Assessment Program in addition to these new tests. So hope you're ready for a lot of standardized testing this year because the federal government, the Missouri Assessment Program is a federally designated test that the whole state has to use. So if you want to get exempt from it, you have to have a federal waiver. So right now that's still pending for these 20 districts. They could get it. They may get it. I don't know yet. But as of now, the students are still going to be taking the Missouri Assessment Program and these new uh, standardized testing system. And these new tests, they're going to be three times a year, and they're going to be completely on a computer. So the old ones, you fill in the bubbles, you know the deal. This one, it's going to be on a computer. You're going to sit down 45 minutes each, 45 minutes for ELA, 45 minutes for math. And this is in contrast to the MAP, which is 260 minutes for ELA once a year and 140 minutes for math once a year. And the last thing you need to know about these for your students is that they're adaptive. So as you miss problems, the the questions will get easier. As you get them right, they'll get harder. And the test is essentially trying to learn what the student is. But I think it's important to know that for students, you really, really cannot afford to make a careless mistake. You can't forget a negative sign. You can't choose the wrong one by accident because these questions are not weighted the same. If you make a careless mistake on a traditional test, it's just you miss one. But if you miss like a promotion question on an adaptive test, you're not going to get offered harder questions anymore. It's going to be like, okay, we offered him the fifth grade question. He missed it. I don't care how he missed it, but he missed it. He's not going to get offered those sixth grade questions anymore. So be very careful to check your work when you're doing these. I know it's kind of a practical thing, but I just think it's important for you to know. And for parents, not a lot's going to change except that the results, you're going to get them quickly. They're going to be more detailed. And since they're exempt from the stated requirements, they're going to have to make a dashboard with all the stats for the parents to see. 
I like how Avery called it a demonstration project. I think it's already demonstrating something. It's demonstrating Desi's failed testing policies. It's demonstrating a decade worth of bad policy. Uh, Missouri had a pretty good testing system, a pretty good standard system, and then we moved to Common Core, and that put in place a series of changes where we changed tests year after year after year. And we've had opportunities to move to a, a better testing system that's somewhat like this computer-adapted program. And DESE hasn't done it. They haven't innovated. They haven't done anything good in terms of these, these uh, testing systems. And what Avery's been describing, this is what most districts are already doing. In most districts, you already have these computer adaptive tests and the state test. And the reason that they have them is because they're diagnostic, right? You can take the test at the beginning of the year. It tells you what the kids need to learn. And then you can track their progress and try to target the instruction to the students. Desi could have implemented a system like this and they never did. Um, so I'm, I'm interested too, to see how this goes. But like I said, I think it's already demonstrating that Desi's failed on the job. Sure. So one of the things we hear a lot when we talk about school performance um, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot over your career, James, is, well, you can't really compare. You can't compare year to year because you said they changed the test. Avery, you said that these school districts that are implementing this inf this uh, innovation waiver, are students are still going to be taking the MAP test. Yes. So do either of you foresee that, depending on how the test scores go, we might start hearing, well, yes, our MAP scores went down, but that's because we were devoting resources, time, and energy to these other tests. So there's a, And, well, maybe the scores on these new tests weren't what we thought they were going to be, but that's because we've got... They're new. We There's a learning curve. I would say just like students who miss their homework and they have an excuse, you're going to hear <laughs> the same thing from school districts. Uh, we've heard the same thing for years about reasons we can't compare, just as you're saying... I, I don't know that it'll increase or decrease, but I think it's very likely you might see some people who shift their attention to focus more on these computer adaptive tests. And for, for good reason, they give diagnostic information. They give information on what you need to work on. The problem with the state tests as they were is it's a one-time summative test that's taken at the end of the year and teachers don't even get the results until the next fall. Students and teachers don't get the results until the next fall's already started. Right, So they can't figure out what they need to change for their students because they didn't get any information that was useful to them. And it might not even be impactful for the following year because they've already started with a new group of students before they get the results. So it makes sense to focus on these sorts of tests because they give you useful information during the school year that can help tailor your instruction. So I, I wouldn't be surprised that people are shifting their focus to the computer adaptive tests. So Avery, these will be implement, implemented in some of these school districts this fall, correct? Yes. And so James, what you just said, we'll have the information much quicker. The schools will. Do we know anything about when the general public, when DESE, or if DESE is going to publish these scores? Do we know anything about that timeline? You know, they haven't said anything about it. They, I even, they haven't even published a what a sample result would look like. They published a sample dashboard on how, where you would find it if you're a parent. So I know it'll be available to parents, but I don't know if it'll be available to the general public or not. Uh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about this because, the, like I said, school districts do these things all the time. There's the NWEA test. There's all sorts of tests that do this. And the results generally are not available to the public. So I'm curious to know whether or not, because they're doing this innovation waiver, if the results will become 
available to the public on these other tests because these other tests are typically nationally normed tests so you could see how the students rank nationally uh, not just in the state missouri doesn't give us some, that sort of uh, level of detail so it'll be interesting to see if we get the results and my last question do we know how long this pilot program is meant to be before are they thinking about and they're broadening it out to the rest of the state and their innovation and their waiver proposal they said it would go through the 2025 2026 school year so whether they try to extend it or not but that's what it is as of now all right um so james a few weeks ago you attended a an education policy conference is that a an accurate description of it, was it? An education conference not so much policy um, and it was abroad. And so that gave you an opportunity. Now that we talk to people across Missouri a lot, you talk to people across the country and we compare states. This is an opportunity for you to talk to people and compare education systems in different countries. So um, were you able to talk to people kind of outside the, the American sphere of education? And if you did, what were some of their impressions of what's going on here? Well, so I was at the European Character and Virtue Associations Conference. I was one of the few Americans there presenting a paper and my paper was really about how schools can teach character and virtue and which type of system is best to promote character and virtue in schools. And so it was really a theoretical paper comparing school schools where students are residentially assigned versus schools where people have choice, where people choose to go to the school. And the argument that I was making is that you're more likely to have a school that focuses on character and virtue when people choose the school, because it's more likely the school will form an identity around character and that people will select into that. When you are assigned to schools, there are all sorts of roadblocks in the way. You have people uh, that are assigned there that believe very different things. And so it was a whole, it was a theoretical argument that I was making that a choice-based system is better for the promotion of character and virtue than a residentially assigned based system. And as I was talking, I started getting really a lot of pushback from this uh, participant from England. And he was really kind of attacking me hard and I was trying to defend myself against him. And I, but I couldn't understand why he was attacking me the way he was. Because in his country, they have choice that you can choose to go to whichever school you want to go to within their public system. And within their public system, they have religious schools that you can choose to go to. But I use the word private. And to him, private connoted a paying system where you pay for the school. Whereas here, you know, we have private schools where we have vouchers or tax credit scholarships, or we have all sorts of programs where people can get money or a scholarship to pay for private schools. And so I asked him why, like when he described his system of choice, I said, why weren't you thinking about that system when I was talking? Because that's exactly what I was talking about is a choice-based system rather than a, a residentially assigned system. And then he said, do you mean to tell me in the United States you're assigned to a school and you don't even get to choose where to go? And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, that's a terrible system. <laughs> and so that was the, the, the general impression that I got of a lot of people is, they were puzzled to find that in the American system, in most places, you're just assigned to a school and you have no agency at all. Because in most parts of the world, you have choices. Either you have a public school choice of different public options, or they have a system where private schools also get public funding and you can choose to go to those. 
So Missouri, especially, but the United States in general, is way behind European countries on this matter. So do you think one of the things that uh, you mentioned, schools that have a, a, a character and a, maybe a value system around them, do you think that part of that is an outgrowth of in a choice system with competition, you have to find ways to stand out. You've got to actively make a case to attract students. So one of the things you that happens is that you guys we're the STEM school, you know, we're gonna or we're the classical education school. Do you think that's one of the the downstream effects? Right, absolutely, it's one of the things. So in the paper, I talk about sort of the organizing principle of the schools. In a residentially assigned school, the organizing principle is a boundary that's drawn. And that boundary might change in a year or two, depending on you know how the district is growing and redrawing school district boundaries. But it's just a geographic boundary that defines the school. So the identity of the school is usually wrapped up in the name of the town or whatever it is. And when a town has very similar people that are all similar uh, politically, similar religiously, the school can certainly take on the ethos of the community and, and form that sort of identity. But what happens in a choice-based system is the organizing principle isn't the boundary. The organizing principle is the design of the school. It's the philosophy that brings them together and it's baked into the recipe, right? And then people choose to work at the school because of that. They choose to send their kids there because of that. And so it allows schools to be formed based on an identity rather than based on a geographic boundary. Yes, Susan Pendergrass on her podcast, uh, it's up at showmeinstitute.org, just had uh, Dr. Ashley Berner on mm -hmm. from Johns Hopkins. And their conversation was about the idea of pluralism in your education system and how important that is. And I feel like that maybe we lose sight of that. There's not that the academic focus isn't very, very important, as we just talked about testing, but this idea that people choose schools for their students for a variety of reasons, and whether it's how they teach or what they teach. And I feel like this idea of there's got to be a standard system and then from the top down, it's going to be the same for everyone. So it has to be what I want, what I want. But in a choice system, it kind of feels like everyone can win or at least have the opportunity to win. And so uh, in these conferences that you go to, how much of the conversation is about pluralism and not just academics and, and all these other aspects that go into a quality school? Well, in, school, in the school choice community, especially... In Europe, it's pluralism is a is a huge part of the conversation. They have a much more rich history, I think, of of church state relations uh, and of of pursuing pluralistic policies. If you look back at the history of public education in the United States, what happened was we started off funding both public and what we call now private schools or parochial schools. Many places, Catholic schools used to get government funding. But what happened is Protestants really took charge. They changed laws to make it so that the public system was nominally Protestant and that the private schools, which were mostly Catholic, didn't get funding, right? So they created a system that was not pluralistic at all. And then in the long run, the Protestants you know, got kicked out anyway. And so now the Protestants don't have as strong of a private school system as the Catholics historically do. So this is this issue of pluralism is key it's the idea that people can choose different things and the government can fund different options for different people and it could be based on religion but it could also be based on educational philosophy 
I love classical education. You might prefer Montessori education. And a pluralistic system allows different people to choose different types of schools and we can coexist with one another. And the last question before we move on, and it's okay if you don't want to lay out an entire system here to reimagine education in America, but in what you just described, one of the things that always comes up is accountability. So we we broaden out the system. You have um, you know, government funding, different school. How do you think about accountability in that system? Well, a large in a large part, I mean, parents choosing is a, a form of accountability. The market pressures are accountability. When we, we look in St. Louis, we just had a charter school close right before the school year started, and they closed because they couldn't get enough students. That's a form of accountability. Now, it's it's sad that they had to close right before the school year started, but in my mind, it was a a smart, well-thought-out decision because what you wouldn't want to have happen is the students commit to go there and then somewhere during the mid-semester the school has to close because they can't pay their bills, right? So Hawthorne Academy closed and that's a form of accountability that we don't oftentimes think about in schooling. We could probably do a whole other podcast talking about more, but uh, you know, Ashley Burner, she has some some good ideas about inspections and whatnot. There are lots of ways that we could talk about accountability. Here's the one point that I, I always want to try to stress: the defenders of the traditional public education system will say it's not fair because those schools don't have to do what we have to do. Well, look what Avery just talked about with the. Uh, innovation school districts or whatever it was called, I forgot. They don't want to do it either, right? The test-based accountability, the public schools don't want to do this sort of stuff. And yet they oftentimes want to foist test-based accountability on the private schools. I think that's the wrong way to go. We can create much better systems of doing it. All right. Well, something we'll certainly keep an eye on. Um, So moving from changing the way that we do education in America to another Um, issue that's been in the news a lot over the last few years and specifically in cities and St. Louis City is no different and it's the homelessness issue and David they're trying the city of St. Louis has been trying for a couple years now to find a new location to build the new homeless shelter and how's it going well there's there's city funds for it but the one in the news right now is a private organization the Peter and Paul Community Services which is a which is a homeless service agency based in Soulard, where they're, they've operated out of the basement of a church in Soulard for decades, and I think been very effective there and sort of fit in well with, with the neighborhood. Uh, but they predate a lot of the people who've come into the neighborhood. So, so they're trying to move now because their, their needs have grown. We've all seen the increase, which certainly is a perceived increase in the homeless numbers over the past several years around the country and in St. Louis and likely in Kansas City as well. Uh, so Peter and Paul Community Services wants to move to a larger facility. They want to build a facility with about 100 beds and they can't find a place that will allow them to locate in the city of St. Louis. And this is really why it's really a fun, interesting, fun's not really the right word, it's fun to debate it debated because there's good arguments on both sides and there's flaws in the argument on both sides. And that is, you know, we all, we need homeless shelters like this to operate, but the rules are according to city law are that if you open something like that, neighbors have an ability to object. And if they get enough signatures to oppose it, they can, they can stop it. And not surprisingly, most people don't want to live next to a homeless shelter. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to live next to a homeless shelter. No, nobody really does want to. 
So, so therein is the, the dilemma. And you certainly understand that. I don't think these people signing petitions opposed to having a homeless shelter in their community, I don't think they're bad people at all. You know, if you've got small children, you, you, you don't want a gathering of, of men, many of whom have substance and mental health issues hanging around your, your neighborhood. Like, I get it. On the other hand, we need places like Peter and Paul Community Services and Larry Rice's shelter that was downtown before it was forced to move. We need them to operate. We need them to take care of the people who need to be taken care of or else we're going to have fewer people, fewer homeless people in shelters and more of them on the streets of of downtown. And that that doesn't benefit anybody. So this is is the dilemma. And I don't think there's an easy answer to it. Uh, The easy answer to it, I guess, is if Peter and Paul Community Services were to find a spot that fits their needs and is far enough away from residential homes that nobody's going to object. But that's sort of a, a one-off solution. That's not a policy solution. And here is just the dilemma of, should a homeless shelter be able to open anywhere? I remember in uh, Brentwood several years ago, there was a very small facility, a group home for for, I believe it was for, for orphans. And it was very small, only going to hold eight, eight or ten children there. And the residents of the neighborhood went, went crazy and were able to, to block it. And I think that was terrible, and I said so at, at the time. Uh, those are young kids. Those are not kids that have, they might have issues growing up in situations that they have, but they don't have, signif- they don't have drug addictions. They don't have significant mental health. So stopping that in Brentwood was, was, a, was terrible. It's a little, I understand the situation of people a little bit more. They tried to open a new facility down in Carondelet in far southeast city, and neighbors blocked it. They've lo- they're looking to expand in the more industrial areas of Sular, and they think that might work. But it's just a really interesting case of where should these facilities be allowed to open, and then that leads to the bigger picture of how are we addressing homelessness, and are we really going about it the right way? Yeah, so I I agree. It is interesting. And I want you to talk to me more broadly as someone who thinks about, writes about, talks about cities a lot. We've seen this um, push for uh, or this conversation about nimbyism, not in my backyard. And on the the other side of the state, there was this conversation uh, having to do with a waste dump. Um, people, you know, didn't Kansas City was trying to build uh, a new waste facility, and people didn't want this. Is dealing with a, a private homeless shelter. These almost seem like thought experiments. Where normally the conversation we hear a lot about apartment buildings, or we talked about a gas station previously. As someone who thinks about this stuff a lot, um, how, how are you thinking about nimbyism and what to do with it? Not just in these uh, extreme cases, but on the in the meaty part of the curve. And I'll throw in one more example. In rural Missouri, you do a lot with, with like concentrated animal feeding operations, really large hog farms where they produce the meat that, that we need to eat as a country. But neighbors, nobody wants to live by them because they're awful to live by. They, they, the smell, the, the water issues they rise. So this is a real issue in rural Missouri. That's sort of rural nimbyism. And I, in those cases, I sympathize tremendously with the with the residents of, of those areas and the waste example you gave in Kansas City is, is a good one so here's sort of how, how I think about it we all, we always think about nimbyism of course not in my backyard as a is like the property rights of the owners there who 
you don't want that to don't want that facility be it a waste transfer facility or a homeless shelter or a hog farm uh we always think about the property rights of the people who will be affected by it well but the people who sell that land to those organizations and those groups themselves who buy it well they also have property rights too and in particular this charitable organization peter and paul like they have rights to buy land and operate a charitable shelter there and in many cases what they're buying may well be within the zoning for that area that happens with hog farms like they buy they want to be established in rural missouri and there's nothing in the law that says you can't operate a, a hog farm there so then the actions come sort of after the fact to try and stop it now i get it i'm not criticizing those those people in rural missouri who hate it because it, those things are terrible but this is sort of how i I think about it that the property rights works both ways and that the people who want to sell the land to the waste transfer facility or the waste facility or the homeless shelter they have a right to sell their property if it's legal to do so for these uses and people have a right to buy it and and use it for these and we cannot you cannot we all understand nimbyism none of us wants these types of facilities in their their backyard but you can't let you can't let oftentimes small really well organized and really loud groups are able to stop generally beneficial developments and this is where you get into apartment buildings where communities really would benefit from having more housing options and more apartment buildings but small groups of homeowners nearby are able to put a lot of pressure on their local elected officials and they're able to stop it and that's genuinely harmful in many instances probably not all instances but uh, but many, and this is this is the the debate we have, and we should not. You can't allow NIMBYism to always win. You cannot allow it to just get any group of highly organized, tightly concentrated voters, even if they are a small minority of their community, to stop things. You've got to you've got to think bigger than that. That said, there are certainly examples where both the heart and the mind say, well. Maybe maybe they're right. Maybe a maybe a homeless shelter with a bunch of men with substance abuse and mental health issues doesn't belong in a in a neighborhood with a lot of children running around there. Like you you can get it. And then that gets to the whole larger issue on homelessness with the Cicero Institute, which is a, a think tank we are familiar with, where they write a lot about this issue that so much of homeless policy especially from the government funding level, not necessarily the charitable groups, but from the government funding level, so much about it is about finding homes for the homeless. But it doesn't really address the reasons most of them, especially men, are homeless in the first place, which is drug and alcohol addiction and mental health issues, and oftentimes all of those, all of the above. So you find them in an apartment, but it doesn't, you haven't treated any of their problems, so three months later they're back out on the street. So the Cicero Institute writes writes a lot about you should not allow just camping in parks, and I don't I don't think you should either. Like I understand when downtown officials, St. Louis city officials downtown, move the homeless away from really popular areas of downtown. That harms the values of downtown real estate, which is supposed to be funding our schools and social services through their property and sales taxes. So you get why the people who bought nice lofts and condos in the in the loft district on Washington Avenue, why they tried to move Larry Rice's center away. I don't think that should have been allowed in that case, but you get that 
if you've got a homeless shelter that's preventing the growth of high value real estate that would then be paying property taxes to better fund schools and social services and police and everything else, it sort of gets to biting the hand that feeds you a little bit. All right, moving to wrap up, we're, as we do every week, we're going to talk about what you guys are keeping tabs on over the next week. And Avery, we'll start with you. All this talk about education just getting me excited for our Corey DeAngelis event coming up, and I'm looking forward to it. September 6th, details and tickets at showmeinstitute.org. James? I guess I'm keeping track of all of the back-to-school activities. Dropped my son off at college. I have my own classes starting this week. My daughter started her senior year, so we got a lot of back-to-school stuff that we might be talking about. To be clear, you're teaching and not attending. I'm teaching. Hmm. That is correct. At the University of Missouri-St. Louis. There you go. And uh, David Stokes. Well, all this education talk has got me thinking that the only, the only thing I really care about is high school sports when it comes to <laughs> education, so... Well, continuing, my son goes to CBC, who will likely continue to dominate football in Missouri as well as other sports, and another son at St. Louis U High, and they also win numerous state championships. And that's really the only thing that actually matters to me when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to education. Policy-wise, I'm still interested in property taxation issues. As people right now, they've gotten their assessments. Right now, taxing bodies are starting to set their tax rates, and people really do need to be pressuring their local governments, that cities, counties, school districts, fire districts, on and on, to roll those tax rates back even more so than they may be legally required so that people aren't walloped by property tax increases at the end of this year. And many more counties are starting to consider what St. Louis County tried to do, which is freeze property taxes for seniors once they turn 62. And as much as I sympathize with that issue, free, freezing the property taxes for one group of the population is, is really terrible public policy. So I look forward to helping stop that and promote better ideas for policy around Missouri. All right, well, thank you for listening. Avery, James, David, thank you very much for being here and plenty more at showmeinstitute.org.